Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. In our third episode, Dr. Jared McKinney of the Air Command and Staff College interviews Ken Moriasu, the chief U.S. editor for Nikkei Asia, one of the world's most widely circulated financial newspapers. Mr. Moriasu and Dr. McKinney discuss a wide array of topics, including emerging technologies, geoeconomics, and the future of reporting in the Indo-Pacific. This is the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. Welcome to the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. I'm Dr. Jared McKinney, your host. Today I have the privilege to speak with Ken Moriyasu, the United States editor of Nikkei Asia, one of Japan's leading publications. Today we will talk about everything ranging from semiconductors to the future of reporting in the Indo-Pacific. Ken, you have reported from the United States and from China and elsewhere as well. And so I want to just start this conversation by asking you about the Nikkei group. Um, Nikkei Asia belongs to a group which has a long publishing tradition, almost a century and a half in Japan. What is Nikkei's history and where does it fit in the Japanese media landscape? Thank you, Jared. Uh, so Nikkei is short for Nihon Keizai Shinbun, which is Japan economic newspaper. Uh, we were established in 1876, first as an in-house commodity price bulletin of Japanese trading house Mitsui. And then we span out and became a standalone economic newspaper, changed our name to the current Nikkei in 1946, a year after the end of World War II. So we have a history of 145 years of being a Japanese print newspaper. So there are two things wrong with that in today's world. One, that it's Japanese, and two, that it's a newspaper. When I joined my company 26 years ago, everybody uh, on the train commuting to work uh, in Japan would be reading a newspaper. Every single person would be reading a print newspaper. And I would say 90% of those people would be reading Nikkei because it's an economic newspaper. Today, um, nobody reads the print newspaper on the train. Everybody is watching their smartphones. And we've tried to switch to becoming a digital publication to capture that. Nobody knows if they're really reading Nikkei. But the other part is that Japan is a shrinking economy and there's not much growth in terms of new subscribers in the small island of Japan. So uh, to expand, we tried to change our the number one um, glass ceiling, so to say, which was our Japanese uh, language. So we tried to um, start an English publication to capture the audience uh, interested uh, in Asia. So we launched the Nikkei Asia, first as the Nikkei Asian Review about 10 years ago. Uh, last year, we changed the name to Nikkei Asia. Uh, we got rid of the review part but to be a more digital, friendly, uh, forward-looking uh, publication. So we do that. Does Nikkei as a group have a political affiliation? I know some newspapers are conservative, some are more liberal-minded. Where does Nikkei fit into that? 
Right. Nikkei is a newspaper for uh, the business world, and the number one priority is to have a free and open economy. So we advocate for a small government with less regulations, but we really aren't affiliated with any political party. We're very independent. But the number one goal is to uh, strive for a community that's good for the business world. Nikkei Asia, the English version, has been around for almost a decade. What would you say is distinctive about it? And what is its comparative advantage today where online news is really an increasingly crowded field? Right. When we launched the Nikkei Asian Review about 10 years ago, we noticed that all the coverage of Asia was coming out of Western publications from the FT, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. They were either headquartered in Washington, New York, or London. And we thought that by being smack in the middle of Asia, uh, we're headquartered in Tokyo, but we have um, bureaus all across Asia with the most number of reporters of any publication, I think, except for the wires. Uh, we thought that uh, having an Asia-based publication focused primarily on business uh, would give us a very different angle because we believe that um, although the Western newspapers are, are very balanced, very fair, uh, they're very accurate, they all do have what we thought was a Western bias. That bias would be to focus uh, first and foremost on human rights and democracy and the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is a one-party rule and there's no elections. So that comes first. So any news uh, would naturally be, be negative. And that's fine, but I, we thought, if you look at the business perspective, there's much more going on. There's a lot of dynamism that's being uh, overlooked by the fact that uh, you focus on, on the political system, for instance. It's not that we don't care about human rights, but I, we thought that um, we would focus primarily on business and try to understand why China does what it does without being judgmental. So that's, I think, the starting point. The number of American journalists in China has rapidly declined in the last year due to tit-for-tat restrictions during the Trump administration. I, do, I can't find the exact number, but I know that there are really maybe just a handful or a couple dozen American reporters in China now. What is Nikkei's presence like in China? And do you think Americans will be increasingly dependent on it and perhaps a handful of other foreign presses for first-hand news about China? Right, so Nikkei so far has not um, had its journalists reduced in China, but our English website uh, and Chinese website, for instance, uh, are not currently uh, visible in China due to restrictions. So we are facing limitations in terms of exposure to the Chinese audience, but we do uh, we have been able to maintain our number of journalists uh, in the mainland and in Hong Kong. I think it's really a problem that uh, the number of reporters on the ground are shrinking for the Western newspapers. Um, there was a time uh, when I was in the Middle East uh, in 2003, four, and five, uh, when American newspapers were all pulling out of the Middle East uh, for budget re reasons, and they were all switching to backpackers who would um, uh, write new articles um, for like $100 a, a piece. 
But we uh, thought that um, the real value of the foreign correspondent was to spend uh, dinners and drinks, hours talking with diplomats, talking with officials, and trying to understand the big picture so that when they do write the article, uh, it will be a culmination of the understanding of the culture and what's going on. And that you really can't find from something that's written from a backpacker. So that really, I think, um, hurt the uh, understanding of American readers to, to the Middle East back then. I, I fear that the same thing is going to happen um, for China, even more because China really doesn't allow backpackers to write uh, or Chinese locals to report for foreign media. So there's so much restrictions. So I think um, the, the, the width and the breadth and the depth of the coverage um, is going to um, really be hurt. Tell me about the relationship between Nikkei, the Japanese publication, Nikkei Asia, the English language publication, and now the Financial Times, which has been acquired by the overall publishing group. If I were to read Nikkei in Japanese and then look at the United States, uh, or the, rather the English language version, would I be seeing the same stories or is there different coverage? A lot of different coverage. Uh, Nikkei Asia is trying to be the publication for Indo-Pacific affairs. So the perspective is very different. We have um, writers who write uh, in English. We have translations as well. So it's a hybrid, but uh, our focus, our editing focus is primarily on the Indo-Pacific, uh, whereas the Japanese Nikkei is primarily uh, on the Japanese um, perspective, from the Japanese perspective. For the longest time, Nikkei's coverage of international affairs was sending correspondents out to cities like New York, Washington, London, and Beijing, and to report to the Japanese audience what is happening overseas. Also, we had an English publication from a very long time whose primarily role, primary role was to report to the English-speaking people in Japan about what's happening in Japan. So it was uh, an inside-out flow of Jap uh, information about international affairs and also uh, inside out what's happening in Japan to the outside world. What we try to do with Nikkei Asia is outside, outside. We would take something that's happening in Vietnam and China in their border and report it for the people of the Philippines or the Singapore. So that's the kind of Pan-Asia publication uh, that we wanted to, to become. And I think we are becoming like that. We're still very heavily uh, focused on Japan for our scoops, I would say. Um, but the, the goal is to become a Pan-Asia uh, publication. So as part of Nikkei's international transformation to, to become a global publication, in 2015, uh, we acquired the Financial Times of London. I happened to be the translator for our chairman back then. So I was uh, involved in the, in the acquisition pro uh, process. And it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience to secretly visit London and talk to the FT board and uh, to exchange views and to, get, to report back to Nikkei headquarters about uh, the, the potential. And I would say that the uh, acquisition has gone very well. We don't call it an acquisition, we call it an FT Nikkei partnership. The partnership has gone very, very well. It has changed the way Nikkei journalists see the world, see their reporting, do their reporting uh, so much that uh, really Nikkei, um, the way Nikkei um, 
tries to report things, tries to the editorial um, strategy is so much different from all the other Japanese newspapers now. Maybe we can turn for a minute to Japanese politics, which is a subject, frankly, most Americans don't follow very carefully. Would you describe Japan today as post-Abe, or is it still sort of undergoing a continuation of Prime Minister Abe's uh, long reign, essentially, over Japanese politics? So I would say uh, our Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga, is very much a continuation of the Shinzo Abe rule. Uh, Yoshihide Suga was Chief Cabinet Secretary, the de facto number two of the government for seven and a half years in, through the entire Abe regime. And Abe was very popular, mostly due to his Abenomics. The Japanese economy uh, managed to um, exit the two decades, two lost decades. Um, and then that kind of propelled Abe to uh, open up a new diplomatic front calling for a free and open Indo-Pacific. So I think uh, Suga is very much a continuation of that in terms of economic policy and foreign policy. Do you have any insight into where Japanese politics is going long-term? What happens when the Abe legacy ends and Prime Minister Suga is replaced, um, maybe with someone with different ideas? Is there a future in which the Liberal Democratic Party either evolves in its ideas or, in fact, is replaced by um, an opposition party. Right. The problem is that uh, Yoshihide Suga, although he's a continuation of the Abe uh, prime ministership, he doesn't enjoy as much support as Abe does, but mostly because of his performance on TV, the way he speaks. He's not as charismatic. He is a very um, down-to-earth uh, he, he implements policy, he's very good at that. He's not very good at articulating policy and charming the crowds. So his pol uh, and he was hit by the coronavirus, so uh, his support rating is not strong. <clears throat> There's a lot of worry among the Liberal Democratic Party whether it can con uh, enjoy, continue to enjoy the strong uh, showing in future elections. If, and Japan does have to have an election by uh, the fall this year, and uh, if uh, Suga uh, does not win, um, if he loses outright, of course, uh, there's going to be a regime change to the opposition. But if he does manage to cling on to um, the rule, the prime minister's office, but with a much smaller majority, there will be pressure uh, from inside the LDP to replace him. The most popular candidate for that would be uh, Taro Kono who is currently in charge of um, the vaccine distribution and also government reform. He used to be foreign minister and also the defense minister. So he speaks perfect English. He's very well known in Washington and he uh, would be a, a safe choice for America too. But we have to also understand that um, when he was defense minister, Taro Kono counseled the Aegis Ashore missile defense system that America was proposing. Uh, two locations in Akita Prefecture and Yamaguchi Prefecture, there was some opposition from the local community that if um, these missile defense systems were activated, 
the, the missiles would go up to shoot the ballistic, intercept the ballistic missiles, but the debris might fall onto the houses of the locals. So they, they wanted assurance that the debris would only fall into the sea, for instance, and, and Japan couldn't promise that, so they had to cancel that. That Aegis Ashore was a system uh, bought, by, bought from the Americans but run by the Japanese Self-Defense Force, and it was a very defensive measure. So uh, even that, um, Abe and uh, Tarakono couldn't implement. So right now the Americans uh, have been discussing um, placing more long-range missiles in, in islands in Japan, which are more offensive, and they will be run by American soldiers. So uh, it's it's an uphill climb. So if uh, Tarakono does become prime minister, considering his history of cancelling the Aegis Ashore, uh, I don't know how good that would be for America's uh, strategy going forward. Very interesting. I have a follow-up on that one. Despite the era of great power competition usually referring to the U.S. and China and Russia, Japan is still the third largest economy in the world and an absolutely essential player in the Indo-Pacific. Given this status, what does great power competition mean for Japan? What are the economic, geopolitical, and military realities for Japan in this era? And are Japan's interests identical to America's? That's a very important question. Japan, I think, ge geographically, is the only country that is caught in the middle of the two superpowers of our generation, the US and China. Uh, Korea, too, but Korea is a peninsula joined at the hip with China. Uh, Japan is uh, an island in the sea. If you ask the Japanese people, I think they're feeling, they feel, or they pretend that they're, they're located around Hawaii, much closer to America. But the reality is they're much closer to China. So that's the geographical reality. So going forward, as it has in the past, it would always have to balance its relations, think strategically of what's in the best interest for Japan. Until now, um, uh, it was very clearly um, just America. There was a period during the Democratic Party's rule uh, under Prime Minister Hatoyama when Japan tried a new path of being in the middle, like a, a triangle, triangular relationship between America, China, and Japan. That really didn't work. That caused so much problems uh, related to the Okinawa bases, for instance. So ever since that, there's been a, a, a swinging back to a very pro-American stance. But I think going forward, um, while uh, America and Japan uh, will always be uh, the number one relationship, I think uh, Japan will have to think strategically uh, about what's best. Because if you look at Japan's diplomacy right now, uh, it has bad relations with every single neighbor has bad relations with Russia, bad relations with North Korea, bad relations with South Korea, bad relations with China. So how can that help advance peace and security in the region? So there has to be more diplomatic effort to, to fix that. Going back to the shared values, um, I grew up in England. And um, in England, um, people make fun of America. Uh, they don't have history. They're very like simplistic. When I went back to Japan, I was genuinely surprised 
at how genuine um, the affection and admiration Japanese people had for America. So I think um, in terms of values, Japan has always looked up uh, to America and um, has a good relationship. But I do also feel that, um, like Samuel Huntington said, you know, it comes down to civilizations. And are America and Japan the same civilization? Absolutely not, is what Huntington said. Uh, if you look at the, the way you, know, um, you eat, Japanese use chopsticks, Americans use knives and forks, that's different. The diet is different. American people sometimes uh, wear shoes in their houses. Absolutely none of Japanese people wear shoes in their houses. So uh, there's a lot of differences in cultures. Uh, I think it's important to not oversimplify um, the shared values because there is a difference. That doesn't mean that they can't be friends, but uh, they're not exactly aligned. I would just say that. And also, uh, one important thing that Simon Huntington said is that Japan has a history of bandwagoning with the strongest country, the superpower of the time. And that in the beginning of the 20th century was Britain, the British Empire. Japan had a um, Anglo-Japanese alliance. And then uh, it switched to Nazi Germany, a 180 degree turn to Germany. And after the war, it did another 180 degree turn to uh, free and liberal America. So Huntington said, if you look at the track record, when if China becomes a superpower, Japan's record shows that it would absolutely not hesitate to bang Vatican with China. I don't know if that's going to happen uh, under the Chinese Communist Party rule with such different political systems. But the reality is that Japan has always bandwagoned with the superpower of the time. I think it's very important to not forget that. How has the trade war affected Japan-China relations? Japan-China two-way trade is somewhere around $350 billion. And uh, Japan-United States two-way trade, I think, is somewhere around $250 billion. And so uh, the trading relationship between Japan and, and China is absolutely key. Um, and has, has J Japanese companies been caught up in the trade war and negatively affected, or have they actually managed to benefit from it? Well, this goes back to history. When uh, Kakuei Tanaka, the Japanese prime minister, visited China in 1972, following um, the President Nixon's trip, um, Mao Zedong and uh, Prime Minister Tanaka talked about uh, war compensation. And Mao Zedong uh, very boldly said that China does not require any financial compensation. The war is over. Let's look forward. So Japan was very grateful for the gesture. And it did not pay financial compensation for World War II, but instead it helped China build infrastructure, ports, especially ports on the east side, and encouraged uh, Japanese companies to build factories uh, in China. It uh, built the Beijing airport, the Beijing metro. Not a lot of Chinese people know that. But um, this helped China becoming the export giant that it, it became through these ports. So Japanese companies built factories across China. China offered uh, very cheap labor. 
as a win-win situation. So that's the start of the relationship. Um, Japan has relied on China for its production more than any country, I would say. But uh, as the decoupling of America and China looks to, to advance, Japan is really caught in the middle. I wouldn't say Japan has benefited at all from the trade war. And going forward, if there is further decoupling, um, it's going to be a, a tough decision. I think if uh, low-tech goods like, um, like clothes, um, they could continue to produce in China uh, for the Chinese market. The Japanese companies could continue to operate their plants in China for the Chinese domestic market. It might become a little difficult to export to other countries. But more importantly, in the high-tech world, I think the decoupling between China and America will only um, intensify. And then Japan would really have to, um, uh, it looks like it, Japan would be encouraged, press, pressured from America to move its high-tech stuff out of China. So I think that's the direction we might be going. But that's trou uh, troubling for Japan's um, uh, companies like Tokyo Electron, who makes uh, chip-making machines, and their number one customer is in China. So that's going to be a, a really difficult decision and choice for these Japanese companies going down the road. And the reason why I talk about the uh, decoupling is because I think um, the American military is increasingly thinking that the next war, the next major battle, if it is between the US and China, will be decided in the opening minutes of the war because China will take down America's GPS, America will try to take down China's Beidou satellite system. And once the satellite system is down, then all uh, America's uh, advantages disappear. Uh, the, the missiles, the aircraft, the tanks, um, um, they don't operate uh, as they potentially could. So they're worried. American military is increasingly worried that uh, Chinese chips uh, that are embedded in these um, American devices uh, could be used uh, to plant malware and give China an advantage in the uh, opening uh, minutes of the next war. And I think the military has convinced the White House and the National Security Council that that is very, very dangerous. And uh, I think um, the measures that the Biden administration will take uh, will be to reduce the dangers of such um, a scenario. And that's why I think that the, the sanctions that Trump uh, imposed on the chip companies are here to stay. In fact, Nikkei has reported that as many as 2,000 companies in the tech sector in China are looking to diversify away from China, uh, foreign companies, due to the tech war and geopolitical concerns. How do you envision this impacting China's economy? And what really are, are the alternatives? India is often mentioned, but looking at India's response to COVID, um, do, do you think some companies might be reconsidering India as an alternative place to diversify? So we have been reporting about the Chinese tech industry and how the decoupling has uh, encouraged China to accelerate its efforts to become chip self-sufficient, which was always a big goal and a big weakness for China. But 
we have reported that the, the efforts made in China and the speed with which it's advancing its chip development is pretty astonishing. And, and that's fine. It's, it's not uh, something to, to lament about. I think uh, the, the direction with which uh, the US and Japan are going down is to build a supply chain free of China uh, with like-minded partners. So India, of course, and Southeast Asia, Australia will be all part of that. There have been discussions. Uh, it hasn't really materialized yet, but I think that's the big direction everyone's going. And how do you... So are you saying that China's economy might not be impacted, might actually do better from this sort of change? Yeah, I think uh, that's the direction or indicators indicate that that is going to be the case. Regarding, regarding India, there is, as you know, the, the cooperation with the Quad, with the US, Japan, Australia, and India. I think uh, we're at the beginning stages of exploring new relationships. There's a lot of appetite and interest uh, in Japan towards India, especially um, because Myanmar is um, suffering what is suffering right now. Uh, a lot of Japanese companies, uh, when trying to diversify from China, looked at Myanmar as the next frontier. Now that bet looks to have uh, been a failure. So they'll be looking for the next destination. And India would be the natural choice, I think. Of course, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam would also be candidates. But yeah, the, the wages are, are going up there. But there's a lot of competition. So India would be a natural choice. If you could um, envision the future, maybe not a year from now or even 10 years from now, but East Asia approaching mid-century, what are some different options that come to mind? Are Japan and the United States in lockstep in opposition to China? Does something more like triangular diplomacy develop in which Japan perhaps is its own pole in an international great power system? Or does China simply dominate East Asia? So I would uh, suggest that Japan and US should be really clear-eyed about the nature of their relationship. And it has been a very successful alliance for the past decades. But I think we have to understand why Japan is crucial for America's strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And that boils down to one thing, I think. I think it's the presence of US military bases in Japan. America has 55,000 American troops the largest contingent of American forces anywhere in the world outside of um, America, and that's in Japan. And the reason why America has so many bases and so many people in Japan is frankly because of World War II. America occupied the bases, the dockyards, the shipyards that the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy used to have, and they've been there since. And that's a tremendous advantage for America's strategy. And for Japan, Japan has to be clear-eyed. Uh, Japan's number one deterrence is the presence of American troops 
in the land. And because there's such a huge presence in, in America, that would deter China and Russia from, from doing anything. And I think there has to be a clear-eyed understanding that that is the strength of the alliance, and therefore there should be efforts to ma made to, to continue that advantage. And going forward, like we discussed earlier, uh, America, as it tries to break the anti-access area denial strategy of China, it wants to place uh, long-range missiles in islands and, and bases close to Taiwan. And of course, the, the closest islands would be in Japan and the Philippines. So I think there has to be a decision, a real tough decisions on topics like that. And, um, you know, there is a tendency to put too much emphasis on the values and friendship. But I think the, the calculus should be that the alliance is good for both US and Japan interests. And to, to, to further that, I think both sides need to uh, discuss frankly among themselves and, and with their own people why, um, how to advance these interests together. Now, regarding China, it very much depends on how China um, conducts itself and how it pursues relationships with neighboring countries. I don't think that China is trying to rewrite the international order. I don't know if there is such an international order to begin with. I think many of um, China's moves are to position itself uh, so that it is not at a disadvantage going forward. I think many of the, the strategies that China is taking, uh, like the Belt and Road, are based on a strategy to win friends and partners in international gatherings like the UN, the WHO, the WTO. I think it's very important to understand that accurately rather than paint or portray China as this uh, evil nation trying to take over the world. So I think one of the biggest things I learned when I was in China uh, in 2013 was that, and this is the, I think, the, the core goal of why the Belt and Road Initiative was launched is that uh, China in 2013, in the first year of Xi Jinping's presidency, changed its uh, foreign policy priority from major country diplomacy to neighborhood diplomacy. Until then, major country diplomacy, number one would be managing its relationship with America and also managing its relationship with big countries like Russia, the Euro uh, EU and, and Japan. But in 2013, uh, he brought neighboring countries first. And why did he do that? Because he thought that uh, going down the road, he would need the support of uh, countries in international settings. And the best way to do that uh, is to uh, establish a community of shared destiny by building roads and, and ports and uh, belts and roads and railways and pipelines with neighboring countries uh, to make sure that these neighboring countries um, had the share, uh, same economic interests as China. So at the end of the day, 
when it comes down to a vote at the UN, uh, they would side with China and not the, uh, not America. I think that was the, the the starting goal for the Belt and Road. And you think, why is China uh, so worried about the international setting? This is something I learned from Professor Yan Shuetong at uh, Tsinghua University. And he said, the problem with the world today is that people are making too many things. Everybody makes too many things, like uh, chairs and furniture and uh, cupboards. In the past, China was the number one producer, but now everybody, Poland makes it, Spain makes it, Italy makes it, Africa makes it. So the goal going forward is to secure the markets uh, to sell Chinese products. Until now, China's goal was to secure rare, um, the resources so it can produce these items. So it rushed to Africa to secure cobalt and copper, bring it back to China and build big, big factories uh, and to produce more. If they produce more, they can sell more. But Professor Yan told me that um, from now, uh, there's too many things. Everyone's making too many things. What determines the success of an economy is having access to markets. And what China really fears the most is having rules implemented that would shut China out of various markets. And to prevent that, it needed friends uh, in international settings. So when they would vote to make the rule, it wants the support of the 55 African nations and the 10 ASEAN states and uh, countries in Central Asia. That's how China protects its in uh, economic interests in the future. And I think the Belt and Road was a big project to, to build uh, friends and partners for that goal. This should be our, our last question, but you've set it up nicely. Uh, one interpretation is that the Belt and Road Initiative is essentially over. And even before COVID-19 hit, investments and loans coming from the largest Chinese banks had already declined precipitously from somewhere around $100 billion annually to under 10, according to reporting from the Financial Times. Of course, in good Chinese form, you can never end something, even when it's over practically, which is, of course, why we have the Communist Party today, even though it's clearly not communist. But it, it, it's resulted from that legacy, and it can't be taken back at this point because it would lose face. And so is, is the Belt and Road Initiative in this same space in that the age of grand ambition is over and flooding the world um, with investment and opportunity. And instead, we might see more individual strategic investment rather than a sort of flood initiative. What, what do you make of that? Right. I think uh, the Belt and Road, well, the question comes down to how come, how, how does China manage to invest all these infrastructure projects abroad? Why can't America do it? Why can't Japan do it? Well, uh, that's because the, Jap uh, the Chinese government uses whatever money it has to fund these projects rather than uh, taking care of its own citizens, uh, its own social security system, its own healthcare system. Uh, because they don't have elections and they, they don't have domestic pressure to do that. They have the freedom to allocate these monies uh, to overseas projects. Naturally, as the uh, domestic society uh, grows, modernizes, it would um, demand uh, social services. So it's only natural that there would be pushback. Uh, 
having questions about why China is spending all its money abroad rather than taking care of its own people. So I think that's a natural um, phenomenon. Also, I think it shows that um, Xi Jinping is no dictator. Uh, if it was his signature program and like Mao Zedong, if he was a dictator, um, he would order the projects to go go along. But clearly, if um, there has been a slowdown, uh, it reflects that he's under pressure and um, that's working. You know, um, in the 1960s, Mao Zedong built the very famous uh, Tanzan railway between Tanzania and Zambia, uh, which would, I think, in today's money, cost like $2.6 billion. 64 Chinese engineers died during that project. But that's the kind of project that dictators do. Uh, Xi Jinping is not doing that. But I do think, uh, going back to the neighborhood countries, uh, diplomacy, yes, I think um, China will stop trying to spread money all over the world, but it will be very focused on uh, building the connectivity with its neighboring countries for the reasons I uh, mentioned earlier. And also it will be very, um, continue to carry on with the strategic investments. Uh, for instance, um, right now, the number one concern it has is its dependence of iron ore on Australia. It imports, I think, 62% of its iron ore from Australia alone. And of course, iron ore is the, the, the core ingredient for steel making. And uh, they're trying to diversify. And they're looking at uh, a country uh, called Guinea in West Africa, which has the largest untapped high-grade iron ore reserve in the world. Um, there, will, there are talks of um, building a huge railway to extract and uh, carry that iron ore from the mountains to the port. It's going to cost uh, a lot of money. But uh, there, there is talk that that, will be, that railway will be complete by 2025. And if, that, if Guinea comes online, then uh, right now the iron ore market, which is dominated by Australia and Brazil, they would have a, a third party, Guinea, which would uh, be just as um, uh, productive, uh, such a, uh, just as big a player, and that would really alter the landscape. And why is China doing that? I think they look at the history of Japan pre-World War II, there was a time when Japan, like China today, uh, was expanding its navy at the fastest pace, uh, building more ships than any other country in the world. But then um, that really concerned the Western nations. And in 1917, America imposed a steel embargo on Japan, and Japan just couldn't make um, ships anymore. And that's the reason why they lost, one of the reasons why they lost World War II. I think China is looking at Australia now uh, Australia increasingly moving away from China, teaming with the Quad. Uh, they think that's dangerous to, uh, to depend too much on Australia alone. And for military purposes as well, they really need to diversify the sources. That's interesting. That brings it full circle. We're now in the age of diversification, aren't we? In which um, no state wants to be dependent for anything critical on one or two other nodes within the global system. So that's, uh, that's a theme we can all watch going forward, I think. Um, Ken Morieso, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you today. I hope um, my listeners look at Nikkei Asia and follow it going forward 
in order to get a Japanese perspective on developments in the Indo-Pacific and to uh, really leave, I think, the, the bubble of American news centered around major American cities. I think we need to see the Indo-Pacific from the Indo-Pacific and that's really why I wanted to speak with you today and I think you did a brilliant job um, introducing that view. So thank you for your time, Ken. Thank you so much, Jared. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indo-Pacific Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Please help us by leaving your comments in the Discuss section in this page or on our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.